You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 156. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your time and your attention today. I thought on the podcast today, since the last several episodes have been rather serious philosophical subjects, that I would pull back and dive into an old story. Because, well, I love old Anglo-Saxon epic poetry, and someone that I've not covered on the show, and someone that I'm not terribly familiar with from that genre, is one of the knights of Arthur's Round Table. And his name is Sir Geraint, and he is a part of a famous tale, often read in the poetic form by Tennyson, but I'm going to read it in prose today and just kind of dive into it and talk about the topic of meekness more than anything, because this morning I was talking with a friend about this whole topic of meekness, and he was noting that it would be nice, it would be a good thing if the virtue of meekness was brought back into our cultural ethic. To which I pointed out, well, first, in order to be meek, one first has to be dangerous. If we go with the proper definition of meekness, meaning someone who is capable of great violence, but chooses not to engage in violence against others, or to put it simply, someone who knows how to use a gun, but chooses to keep his gun in the holster. But broadly speaking, then also I said, Meekness as a virtue was a part of warrior cultures. It is a virtue of a warrior. So in order for us to bring back meekness, to make it a part of our cultural ethic today, we would also have to then bring back the warrior culture, maybe not writ large, but rather as a subset of our culture. But since we do not really have a warrior culture. We may have a warrior class, a warrior vocation within our culture in the United States. But as far as a subset, a culture that breeds warriors, that says, this is what we do. We make warriors. That is not true of our culture. It's more of an anachronism than a subset. And therefore, I've been thinking this morning about this whole question of Is it even possible in the United States today, for example, and possibly in the industrialized Western world, is it possible for meekness to become a popular virtue again? I think the answer is yes, it's possible. I don't think it's probable because of what I just delineated. We don't have people, in my experience anyways, and I'm just speaking for myself and my own personal experience, I don't encounter many people who are dangerous because they are warriors. I know people who are dangerous because they're weak, they're pitiful, they're selfish, they're narcissistic, they're hurt people who hurt other people to try and get that off of their shoulders and put it on somebody else, make it someone else's responsibility. But as far as dangerous men and women... That is, those who are trained in the art of war, in the art of physical or kinetic combat, I don't meet a lot of those people. And therefore, 
the whole matter of meekness is kind of a non-starter for a conversation. And so what do we do then? Those of us who want to embrace meekness because it is a part of our ethic. Well, I think that's the point, is that we do the studying, the reading, the thinking, the living out of that meekness, because we are the ones who train. We train our bodies, we train our minds, we train our hearts, so that we are experts to a greater or lesser degree in violence. We are the dangerous ones because we are trained in violence. We choose violence as a hobby, as a lifelong pursuit, as a vocation or a career. But we don't choose violence so that we can enact violence on other people. That's a misnomer. It's a misunderstanding of the purpose of martial arts, for example. I do not train and teach martial arts seven days a week so that I can bully other people. Quite the opposite, actually. I don't do it so that I can walk around and strut and puff out my chest and let people know that I'm a badass. I very rarely, if ever these days, feel like a badass. <laughs> and part of the reason is, actually a large part of that reason is, because on a daily basis I am reminded I am not a snowflake. I am not special. And there are many people who are better trained, who are more athletic, have better, greater abilities than I do, who are just better all the way around at jujitsu and Muay Thai than I am. And there are people in this world who are dangerous people and I don't know them. I can't identify them at first look. But since I am very well acquainted with violence and the consequences of violence and the many, many possibilities that are available when two people, three people, or a group of people engage in violence, the last thing that I want when I leave the house is to engage someone violently. And to the best of my abilities, when I am in those situations, I try to de-escalate the situation, bring down the emotions, bring down the potential for violence to break out, and to try and arrive at a peaceful resolution to the conflict. That being said, if someone enters my personal space and attempts to put their hands on me, if someone threatens my wife or my children or a friend or a student or a member of my church, then I am prepared to do great violence to them quickly, decisively, and emphatically. Again, not to cripple them, not to kill them, but rather to stop them in a way that is non-lethal and God willing they don't end up with broken bones. And so this whole matter of meekness then and discussing this virtue, this ethic of meekness, I think we have to go back and we have to study the old stories, the epic poems. We have to go back and read about men of war, whether it be Cyrus or Alexander, whether it be Napoleon or Patton. We study these people. We read Musashi, for example. We read Sun Tzu. We read the Hagakure, we read Bushido by Inazo Natobe. We read these things to teach us this is how one lives as a warrior. This is how one embraces the ethic of the warrior class. And whether one chooses to become a professional warrior, or rather one pursues this as a philosophical ethic, 
I don't see where either of those choices are a bad thing for the individual, for their friends and family, for society as a whole. If there were more people, I think, if there were more people who embraced the ethic of the warrior class and lived that way and manifested that ethic in their lives, well, I think it would be a better society all the way around because it would be built on mutual respect, on honor, on courage, on meekness, on temperance, on prudence, on practical wisdom, righteousness, justice, all of these things that the Stoics embraced. But also warriors across the earth also embraced, both in the Western and Eastern societies. And that tips me off to a thing, just as an aside before we dive into this, this story. If, again, let's just use meekness as an example. If meekness were a Western virtue, it wouldn't show up in Bushido. But it does. And if it were only an Eastern ethic, it wouldn't show up in the epic poetry and the legends. So it, that tells me that these people that lived in different places at different times who embraced the ethic of meekness, to me that, that suggests that meekness is actually an objective reality. It's actually a part of how we're made, that we are actually made to be meek. Because it is an ethic, it is a philosophy, it is a way of living that people across time and history have embraced. So there must be something objectively true about that. And I think that's why it's important for us then to really pay attention to those things. Because when we recognize this is a phenomena across cultures, across time, that again indicates to me that this is important and it's, it's something that's a part of us. And by attempting to suppress it, we limit ourselves and ultimately dehumanize ourselves and others because we're not paying attention to the, the core foundation of what makes me, me and you, you and what makes us all human beings. And so if we can recover meekness, courage, um, temperance, prudence, these kinds of things, I think it really goes a long way in not only enhancing our lives and making us more fully human, but enhancing the lives of everyone around us. So that's kind of why I get preoccupied with these questions, I guess. And I hope that then it's beneficial to you and helpful for you to hear my thoughts about these things and then to go off on your own and read these stories and gain and learn from them what is relevant and vital for your life. And then one last thing. I didn't know how to pronounce this. And so I went online, I went onto YouTube and listened to uh, a man whose name is actually Geraint pronounce the word so that I understand how to pronounce it correctly. And if I'm butchering it, I'm sorry. But he said it's g like egg and rint like pint. So Geraint. So since he's Welsh and that's how he pronounces his name, that's how I'm going to pronounce it. So Sir Grint and Enid. One of the bravest knights in King Arthur's court was Sir Grint. Once he was in the forest with Queen Guinevere and one of her maidens when a lady, a knight, and a dwarf rode by. The queen told the maiden to go to the dwarf and ask who his master was. As the maiden approached him, she saw that the knight had a very proud face. She asked the dwarf his master's name, but he said roughly, I don't know. If you do not know, answered the maiden, I will ask him myself. She started to ride up to the knight, but the dwarf struck at her with his whip. Upon this, she went back 
and told the queen and Sir Geraint what had passed. Sir Geraint was very angry, and he said to the queen, Fair queen, I will ride after this knight and his dwarf, and avenge the insult done to your maiden. If I succeed, I shall return in three days. Do so, said the queen, and I trust you will succeed, not only in this, but in all things you attempt. Some day you will love some fair lady. Before you marry her, bring her to me, and no matter how poor or how rich she may be, I will clothe her for her wedding in the most beautiful garments in the world. They shall shine like the sun. So off rode Sir Geraint, keeping at some distance behind the lady, the knight, and the dwarf. At last, after passing through many woods, he lost sight of them as they disappeared beyond the top of a hill. Sir Geraint rode up and saw below him in a valley the one street of a little town. On one side was a fortress, so new that the stone of which it was built was still white, while on the other side stood a gray old castle, fast falling into decay. He saw the three people he was following enter the fortress. In the little town there was a great deal of noise and bustle. At first Sir Geraint could not find any place to stay, for the houses were all full. He stopped before a servant who was scouring his master's armor and asked what all the noise meant. The servant said, The sparrow hawk, and went on working. Then he met an old man carrying a sack of corn and asked him the same question. The old man made the same reply. Next, Sir Geraint approached one who was making armor and questioned him. Without looking up, the man replied, Friend, he who works for the sparrow hawk has little time for answering questions. Sir Geraint was vexed and said, I am weary of hearing of your sparrow hawk. I do not understand what you mean. Will you not tell me where I can find a place to stay for tonight? And will you not sell me some armor? I have but my sword. Then the man looked up and said, Your pardon, sir. We are all very busy here, for tomorrow we hold a tournament, and our work is not half done. I cannot give you armor, for we need all that we have in the town. As to lodging, all the room is taken. However, perhaps Earl Eniol in the castle will receive you. Sir Geraint rode over to the gray old castle, and as the gate was open, entered the ruined courtyard. Dismounting, he went into the hall. Here he found the earl, an elderly man dressed in clothes which had once been handsome, but were now old and worn. To him Sir Geraint said, Good sir, I seek lodging for the night. The old earl Ineol answered, Sir, I was once rich and am now poor. Nevertheless, I will gladly give you the best I have. As he spoke, someone in the castle began to sing. The voice was very sweet. Sir Geraint thought he had never heard anyone sing so wonderfully. That is my daughter Enid, said the earl. 
Then he took Sir Geraint into a room in which sat an old lady in a faded velvet gown. She was the earl's wife. By her side stood Enid in a faded silk gown. She was as beautiful as her voice was sweet. And after watching her, Sir Geraint said to himself, I already love this maiden. He said nothing out loud, only looked at her. Earl Iniol spoke to her. Enid, this good knight will stay with us. His horse is in the courtyard. Take it to the stall and give it corn. Then go into the town and buy us some food. Sir Geraint wished to put away his horse himself, but the old earl said, Sir, we are very poor, but we cannot permit our guest to do any work. I pray you, stay here. So Enid took the horse to the stall. After that, she went into the town and soon returned with meat and sweet cakes. Then, because most of the rooms in the old castle were in ruins, she cooked the meat in the same hall in which they were to eat. When the meal was ready, she waited on her father and her mother and Sir Geraint. The knight watched her and loved her more and more. When they had risen from the table, he said to the earl, My lord, pray tell me what the people of this town mean when they speak of the sparrowhawk. The earl's face grew sad as he said, That is the name given to the young knight who rules in this town. Does he live in the fortress? asked Sir Geraint. And do a lady and a dwarf ride with him? Yes, said the earl. Ah, then he is the man I am in search of, said Sir Geraint. I must fight with him before three days are over. I am Geraint of King Arthur's court. I know your name well, said the earl. We often hear of your great deeds at Camelot. Many times have I related to my Enid the story of your brave deeds. I am bound to do my duty with the other knights, answered Sir Geraint. And now tell me more of this sparrow hawk. Alas, he is my nephew, said the earl. At one time I ruled this town. My nephew, the Sparrowhawk, was powerful, too, and he asked to unite our power by marrying Enid, but neither she nor I wished it. Then he collected a body of men and attacked me, and took all my wealth, leaving me nothing but this old castle. Tomorrow, said Sir Geraint, I will fight in the tournament with this Sparrowhawk, and I will conquer him, and I will give you back your lands but I lack armor. I can give you armor, although it is old and rusty, said the earl. But no one is allowed to fight in this tournament unless there is some lady he loves best in all the world. Then he fights for the sake of this lady. And if he wins, receives the prize, which he in turn gives to her. What is the prize? asked Sir Geraint. A hawk, a sparrow hawk made of gold. This nephew of mine is very strong and has always overcome every knight who has opposed him in these tournaments, which are held yearly. It is because he has won the prize so often that he is called the sparrow hawk. But tell me, 
Is there some lady whom you love? Then Sir Geraint said, I love this child of yours, my lord, and will gladly make her my wife if you will permit it. The earl was very glad, but Enid was afraid, because she thought she was not worthy of such a great knight. And yet she knew she loved him, and said so, and soon promised to go with him to Arthur's court within three days. The next morning, the earl and Sir Geraint and Enid went to the field where the tournament was to take place. Many knights and ladies were there. The ladies sat under a pavilion which was draped in purple velvet, ornamented with gold, while the knights were on horseback. A herald blew a trumpet, and the knight who was called the Sparrowhawk galloped into the field. He rode around it three times, and then went up to the pavilion and said to his lady, I give you the gold Sparrowhawk again, because no one dares to fight with me for it. Then Sir Geraint rode forward in his rusty armor and said, I will fight with you. The knight looked upon him and gave a very scornful laugh as he rode at Sir Geraint. The two clashed together and began to fight fiercely, while all the people watched. Twice they had to stop and rest. For a long time they seemed evenly matched, and no one could decide which would win. But when Sir Geraint looked to where Enid sat in her faded silk gown, among the richly dressed ladies in the pavilion, he grew very strong and struck his enemy such a blow that he fell to the earth. Now, Sparrowhawk, said Sir Geraint, I have overthrown you. You must do two things. You must ride with your lady and your dwarf to Arthur's court and ask pardon of Queen Guinevere, because your dwarf struck her maiden. And you must restore all the riches that you have taken from your good uncle, Earl Eniol. This the knight promised to do. And afterwards, in Arthur's court, he grew very sorry for his evil deeds and became a good man. Meanwhile, Enid was making ready to go to Arthur's court with Sir Geraint. She was sorry that she had only her robe of faded silk. She remembered a robe her mother had given her before the sparrow hawk took their riches. It was of velvet, the color of mother of pearl with gold leaves and flowers and birds embroidered upon it. And while she was thinking of this beautiful robe, her mother entered the room, carrying it. Enid gave a cry of joy, and her mother told her that the sparrowhawk had just given it back, together with other robes and gold and jewels. Put it on, Enid, she said and helped her daughter to array herself in the handsome gown, exclaiming, How beautiful you look, my dear child! Sir Geraint may well be proud to fetch such a fair lady to King Arthur's court. Just then, the earl entered to tell them that the knight wanted Enid to ride with him to Camelot in the faded silk dress in which he had first seen her. Enid although she was deeply disappointed, at once put on again her faded gown. When Sir Geraint came in, he saw that the earl's wife was also disappointed. So he told them that the queen had promised to dress his bride in the most beautiful robes in the world for her wedding. At this, 
Both ladies were much pleased. So after bidding farewell to her parents, Enid rode with Sir Geraint to Camelot, where the queen welcomed her and gave her a robe that was as bright as the sun. Then the good Archbishop of Canterbury married Sir Geraint and Enid amid great rejoicing. And that ends the tale of Sir Geraint and Enid. It's a paraphrase, a summary, if you will, of Tennyson's poem, which is much longer and much more, obviously, poetic in an epic style. So I invite you to read that as well at your leisure. But I think, again, within the context of the story of Sir Geraint, we obviously see bravery and honor. But we also see humility, not only on the part of Sir Geraint, but also on the part of the Earl, his wife, and his daughter, Enid. And we also see Geraint, when he defeats the hawk, (laughs) how he grants him mercy. He doesn't kill the sparrow hawk, but rather he defeats him in combat. And being a knight, being a man of honor, of integrity, he grants him his life. And for that, the Sparrowhawk is repented. He goes to Camelot. He repents of his rudeness and the belligerence of his dwarf toward the handmaiden of Guinevere. He gives back Enid's dress. Now, of course, this is a fairy tale. Myth. But yet it is told in order to communicate this ethic that amongst the warrior class there are virtues and there are vices. The Sparrowhawk obviously represents the vices and Geraint represents the virtues. I almost said Geralt, but that's the Witcher, that's a different thing. (laughs) So I think, again, when we read these stories, not only are they great stories, And not only are they stories that we can read our children and read out loud and get excited by them and be inspired by them, but the subtext, the moral of the story is, if you want to be like Sir Geraint, if you want to be a knight, if you want to be someone honorable, then you need to embrace these virtues. And here they are. And here's what they look like in actual practice. And so a knight does not carry himself in such a way that he disrespects and treats others rudely. And a knight does not act unmercifully towards those who are poor, those who are weak, those who are people who disagree with him. But rather he practices mercy and justice. He practices righteousness. He's honest. He tells the truth. He holds himself to a standard that others may not hold themselves to, but may then be inspired by him to live according to the same ethics and standards. And I think that's important, again, especially in our current society in the United States. There's not a lot of virtue, at least not what we would consider, quote-unquote, classical virtue. Nowadays, as we all know, virtue is vice. It is sin that is held up as good, and God-pleasing, it is the vices that are held up as being virtuous. 
Dishonor is considered honorable. Cowardice is considered bravery. Everything is upside down and backwards, which is a part of the plan. Go read 1984, for example. Orwell discusses this at length. But I think, too, for as much as we may not appreciate pre-moderns, the hierarchy, I do. You don't have to. I understand. It doesn't really jive with postmodern thought. I'm not a big fan of postmodernity or postmodern philosophy. I tend to reject it, having studied it and found it distasteful and really useless, actually. <laughs> postmodern philosophy to me is largely just philosophers talking about philosophy, and not in a practical sense, but more in a kind of abstract, let's just talk about things like words, because we can, rather than, okay, but how do these words affect people's everyday lives? Eh, we don't really care. We're not about that. We're about the academy. That's why I love Nietzsche's attack on philosophy and philosophers. Same thing happens in theology. But I think that's part of the problem is that because we live such a leisurely existence in the United States, because we do enjoy privilege across the board, as I said, even our morbidly obese people or even our poor people are morbidly obese. So how privileged are we as a society that those who are poor are still fat? Go to other societies, go to other cultures and see how their poor live and what they look like. And so as a consequence, because I just had this conversation over the weekend too, um, it's somebody that I know. We have very, very similar styles of parenting. We have similar ethics about that. We have very similar confessions of, of our faith. We're very alike in many, many ways, except in one particular area that is a point of division between us, and that is on this matter of preparing your children to fight. I believe from my own experience and from everything that I have read, but primarily from my own experience, that the world is a dangerous place and that most people that I've encountered in my travels, they just want to live their lives. They do their best to take care of themselves, to take care of their families, to take care of their communities. And if I treat them with respect, they have always treated me with an equal, if not greater amount of respect. And yet within that, I've encountered evil people, malicious, malevolent people. I've encountered people who have said outright, I know I'm a bad person and I don't care. But within those other societies where the line between good and bad is so clearly drawn, it is then easy, as I've talked about before on the podcast, to know I can talk to that person over there, but that group over there, no. I can go into this neighborhood, but not that neighborhood. I can be here at this time of day, but not there at that time of day. There are rules. And once you understand the rules, it's pretty easy to navigate those societies. In the United States, on the other hand, we don't have as clearly drawn lines. Now, I would say, just like in all my other travels, most of the people that I encounter just want to be left alone, so to speak, to, again, take care of themselves, take care of their family, their community. They just want what's best for themselves, which is selfish, granted. But in our culture, because of how consumerism has been confused with individualism and with this sense of, I just want to be left alone to live my life, we look at everything and everyone as if they're a product that we have to decide, are we going to buy this or not? 
We treat our friendships this way. We treat our marriages this way. We treat our faith this way. We treat everything as if it's a product. And then we have to make the choice. Am I willing to pay the price or not? And as a consequence, ethics are also treated as a product. And that, to me, is a fundamental mistake. Because like I said at the beginning, if these are objective truths, then they're not open for discussion. They're not an option that we can choose to purchase or walk past. Because what happens as a consequence, and I think we see this culturally, is that by not embracing virtue, not embracing these time-tested traditions that have been the foundation, the skeleton of every strong society throughout human history, and we can actually then track the loss of these virtues with the implosion of these societies. We see this over and over and over again. And we see this in the United States today. We're going through something very similar to Mao's revolution in China back in the 50s, but now we're doing it in the United States. And the olds, the four olds that Mao listed, are now the four olds that we see being attacked in politics, mainstream media, in TV and movies, in music. And we see the four news of the Maoist revolution being pushed constantly. And so, of course, tradition being one of the four olds, it has to be squashed. Virtue has to be squashed so that we can invent new virtues, which is really elevating vices to the level of something that is something that we should all embrace and actually try to live in our lives. As a consequence, people are confused because they're not taught the virtues growing up. They're not taught in schools. They don't see these on the TV. They don't see these on the movie screen like you would see back in the 50s, 60s, even the 70s. We don't see these virtues and therefore we don't seek to emulate them. We don't have heroes so much as we have anti-heroes, which is just a fancy way of saying a villain who hates the same people I hate. But we don't have heroes. This is why I've talked about before also that I've, I've listened to comic book writers discuss how difficult it is to write Superman because he is a good man. He's a virtuous man, much in the same way that Steve Rogers' Captain America is in Marvel Comics. It's very difficult to write them because they have a code. And it's not Batman's code, but rather it's a code. And it's a very strict code. It would be like playing a paladin in Dungeons & Dragons. The hardest character in Dungeons & Dragons to play is the paladin because they are lawful good. And they will not play around with chaotic characters. And so you, as a dungeon master have to be very crafty and very smart in how you put together the story, the narrative for the adventure that you're about to engage in because paladins are difficult to play. And on the other hand, again, the, the truly chaotic evil characters are also very difficult because they're chaotic evil. So therefore the decisions they make are always going to be detrimental to the group. And again, it's how do you, how do you tell a story how do you get a group of people to play a game together when you have someone who is so rigid in their ethic that they're either so good that they will have nothing to do with liars and thieves and so forth, or someone who's so chaotically evil that you have to figure out how to get everyone in the group to kind of go along with or get the chaotic character to go along with this heroic narrative when all they care about is themselves. But what these old stories do 
is they make a very clear line in the sand between good and evil. So you're not going to see Sir Geraint play around, play fast and loose with lying, stealing, cowardice, these kinds of things. And likewise, the bad guys in the Arthurian legends are bad guys, but they're bad because they represent and they exhibit vice and therefore they're not worthy of honor or respect. So every story that you read within the Arthurian legends then takes up these questions, these big picture questions about right and wrong, good and evil, virtue and vice, and places it in a kind of safe box, which is this heroic narrative. And therefore, when you read the story and you tell the story to others, it's very easy to grasp this is right behavior, this is wrong behavior. This is a good man, this is a bad man. This is a good woman, that's a bad woman. So we need to be more like these people over here who are good and less like these people over here who are bad. These people are selfish. These people sacrifice. These people are dishonorable. They're liars, they're cheaters, they're thieves. These people over here don't lie. They don't cheat and they don't steal. These people are charitable. These people will rob you of your last nickel. Don't be like them. And I wonder then if the reason that our, we actually, our children in particular, but we in general, are so lost as a society is because we have no foundation. There's no skeleton because the controllers, those who are pushing a new narrative and the new news and getting rid of the four olds who want a revolution who want to see our society collapse so that it can be rebuilt in their own image, who want us to engage in a kinetic war with China, for example, who want to engage in social engineering and depopulation, who want us captive to AI, who want us sick and depend upon them for medications and pills and solutions. We can't stand up to that. And we can't think of an option even more so, even more profoundly, I think. We can't imagine another option because that has been taken away from us. And so the great benefit of podcasting is we have this platform and we can read these stories. We can have these conversations for the time being, and it's an open marketplace of ideas. And so you can listen to what I'm saying and you can decide whether to pick it up or put it down. Again, consumer driven thought, consumer driven way of seeing the world. But if you listen to the story of Sir Geraint and Enid, you listen to my ruminations and you decide, okay, that's actually worth considering. I think I'm going to go off and read the Arthurian legends or I'm going to buy the, I'm going to buy Tennyson and I'm going to read Tennyson's poem about this. I'm going to pass this on to other people. I'm going to give this to my kids. We can create the option. We can affect people positively by simply passing along the story. Because to me, Sir Geraint and Enid, it's, it's actually dynamite is what it is. It's verbal dynamite. It's mythical dynamite. Because once you read this and it turns you on, it, it really flips a lot of circuits. And it makes you ask, is there more like this? Or like when I read The Wanderer, Sir Orfeo, these kinds of epic poems, they turn me on. Beowulf, of course, Beowulf, of course. By the way, go watch The 13th Warrior. It's on Tubi, and Tubi is free. You don't even need a subscription. 
I love that movie. It's one of those movies that when it came out was overlooked and I don't know if it was marketed correctly, but it's essentially Beowulf, but with a twist. But anyways, it's called The 13th Warrior, stars Antonio Banderas. It's a fantastic movie. It's so good. Love it. I got to watch it tonight, actually. But that's what I mean, is that they don't make movies like that anymore. I think they made that at the end of the 90s, maybe, mid-90s. But the point is, if we can pass along these stories as they've been passed along to us, we can at least create maybe not a subset of people within the culture that embrace this warrior's ethic, but a sub-subset maybe, and pass it along to our children. And they can pass it along to their friends and say to their friends, hey, here's something that we never read in school, or hey, have you ever checked this out? And just by telling stories, we can light the stick. We can hand off that stick of dynamite to others who will then use that to blow up the foundations of this sick and twisted and perverted culture that we currently live in. It is weak, of course. Weak men make weak times. So our culture is full of weak cowards, lazy, lethargic people, thoughtless people, dangerous people, very dangerous people. Read Alexander Solzhenitsyn on this topic. They're the most dangerous people because weak men and women will do anything to survive. They don't care about morality or ethics. They don't care about right and wrong. They only care about survival. These are dangerous people. People with power who want more power are the most dangerous people because they are the most needy and they are weak because they need power in order to feel strong because they are themselves not strong. So to return to the topic of meekness then, like Sir Geraint, when we choose to keep our sword from drawing blood, when we keep the pistol in the holster, when we seek to de-escalate and show mercy, it doesn't always work out for the best. Experience teaches us this. But to the best of our abilities, as much as we can affect the outcome, we seek a peaceful outcome. We seek the conversion of the sparrowhawk. Because we know by holding ourselves to a higher standard, we can inspire others to elevate themselves, to raise themselves up to that standard. And to those who refuse, well, again, therefore the line is drawn very clearly now. And we know which side of the, law, the line that you are on. And so now we know how to interact with you. But if we don't set the standard, if we don't draw the line and say, past this point, you shall not pass unless you embrace this ethic. If we don't do it, who will? But then when we do draw that line, when we do plant our flag on that hill, and we say this is worth sacrificing for, this is worth dying for, even if no one else follows me up the hill. We've provided a beacon, a light on a hill for our children and others who are struggling but they can't quite put their finger on it. They can't quite name what it is they're, they're, they're searching for, they're hunting for. But by us doing that in the very simplest of ways, read the story, pass the story along. That's it. Converse, talk about the story. We excite people. We inspire people. We encourage people. Try this instead. Think this way instead. Live this way instead. And it may seem like a myth 
the story. But under the story is an objective truth about each of us, that when we live this way, our life is good. But if we choose to live the opposite way, our life is bad. And when we live in the way of the one, Sir Geraint, the good that comes is the good of knowing and the good of living in such a way that others can say, you're a good man or a good woman. And I want to be around a person like you because I understand you and I'm safe with you and I can trust you. If you choose the other path, then don't be surprised when you end up isolated, when you end up alone and resentful, when you're spiteful towards others because you're untrustworthy. You're not the type of person that people want to be around because you're not inspiring and you're not encouraging. And they can't depend on you because you're not safe. So when we choose the one path over the other, and maybe next week I'll come back and I'll read more in the Arthurian legends to get into Gareth, maybe. That's another one. Yvain, Balin. You can read some of these other legends. Arthur fought with a giant. There we go. I haven't read that one in probably forever since I was in junior high or high school. Maybe we'll do that. But by reading these stories, this is how the folks in communist Russia and Soviet Russia, this is how they fought Soviet oppression. They read these stories to their kids. They read the Lord of the Rings to their kids and that inspired their children. They read the Arthurian legends. They read Beowulf to their children. Because of course, these are just harmless stories, right? Well, to a communist, they are. But to those of us who know to those of us who listen for the subtext, to listen to what's really the moral of this story. This isn't an impotent story. This is dynamite. And by lighting the fuse on this and then handing it off to other people, we're creating a chain of explosions that are going to free people and free their minds and set their imaginations aflame. And when we do that, we can actually change the world. So, Pass along the story. Tell the story. Talk about the story. Sir Geraint and Enid. And in doing so, you may just change the world. So that being said, I will say thank you, as always, for listening to the podcast. Thank you so much for your support and encouragement. I know I haven't been recording my sermons of late, well, actually, the past couple months, primarily just because I don't have time. And when I do have time, I'm tired, so I nap. <laughs> and as a consequence, when I can get to that, I will try and record a whole bunch of sermons and push them up on the website. But until then, I thank you again, Space Monkeys. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Thank you for clicking on the support button at Anchor FM. Thank you for subscribing at WordPress. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll talk to you again real soon. Peace.